Welcome to this live teaching through Jude chapters one or chapter one, verses one and two. My name is Joel Sedecase, and I'm going to be taking you through these initial verses of Jude. Now, Jude is a book that is incredibly fascinating. It's also incredibly overlooked. I don't think I need these headphones. It's also incredibly and unjustly overlooked. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because it deals with some weird stuff. Maybe it's because it's such a short book of the Bible. Um, but Jude is a really fascinating book. And as we dive into it, you're going to get not only insights for life, but it's going to help you understand the biblical worldview a lot more in depth. Like I said, we're going to deal with some really fringy stuff as we begin to work our way through Jude. So if you have your Bible, please open it up or go to a Bible website. You can go to BibleGateway.com, Bible Hub, um, but open up your Bible and go to Jude. There's only one chapter in Jude, but go to Jude chapter one, verses one and two. And we're going to explore this together. Now I do have a handout for you. It's in the comments Wherever you're watching this, if you're watching it on social media somewhere, it will be in the comments. If you can't find the handout, then um, let me know and I'll repost it. But there is a handout for you. I'm also going to be putting the handout up on the screen. So let's go ahead and get started. This is Worldview Legacy, the podcast from the Think Institute that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedecase. I'm a former pastor, and currently I serve as the executive director and board president of the Think Institute. We are a Christian teaching and outreach organization that seeks to help Christian men lead their families in the biblical worldview, build a worldview legacy, and fulfill their calling in their local areas, families, and churches. Really, I'm here to help you become the worldview leader that your family and church need you to be. And there is no better foundation or equipping that I could possibly provide for you other than the Word of God. So what I'm about to share with you is not something that I made up. We're going to open up God's Word together, unpack, uncover what it says, and you're going to walk away with some really practical advice. Advice is not the right word. Teaching, doctrine, instruction on how to live. And remember, this is not coming from me. This is coming from the Lord. So, Let's get started. Let's go ahead and jump in. I've got my notes here, and I'm going to go ahead and put them on the screen. Here we go. This is Jude 1, 1 and 2. Jude 1, 1 and 2. And let's actually read the passage together. Now, Jude is the second to last book of the Bible, and I'm going to be reading from one of my favorite versions of the Bible, which is the CSB. CSB version says this. I'm going to read it, but I'm not going to put it up on the screen. So I hope you're reading along. Here's what it says. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Right away, that's a very interesting introduction, which we're going to unpack at the end of this video, of this episode. Jude continues. To those who are the called, loved by God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ called, loved, kept. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So I'll read that again one more time. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, 
to those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, if you know anything about me, I am a student of John Frame, at least his writings. I've never studied under him in seminary, but I love the writings of John Frame. John Frame's one of my favorite living theologians, and he writes about triperspectivalism, which is how it's the idea that all of reality can be viewed through three different perspectives, the normative, the situational, and the existential perspective. So if you've ever read anything by John Frame, whether it's Apologetics to the Glory of God, Theology in Three Perspectives, any of these books by John Frame, you will begin to see triangles and threes and triads everywhere. And as I'm reading Jude 1, 1 and 2, I'm seeing these triads. Are you seeing these? He says, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. One, two, three, called, loved, and kept. And then he wishes three things, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So Jude is writing in threes. He's viewing reality and the blessings we have from God in terms of threes. But let's let's get some initial observations here. Who is James? James, sorry, who is Jude? Jude is a brother of James. Who is James? The James here is likely the James who is not the son of Alphaeus, but the the son of Mary and Joseph. The son of Mary and Joseph was the half-brother of Jesus. I say half-brother because Jesus only shared a mother, not an earthly father. Jesus did not have an earthly father. God is his father. Joseph was his adoptive father. James and Jude most likely were his half-brothers. So we'll talk about more, more about that at the end. But Jude calls himself a brother of James, which likely means he is the brother of Jesus. And who is he writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. We know this because he says that he is writing to those who are called, loved by God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. These are three different ways of describing believers. That word called, most likely Jude means elect, those who are chosen by God. We'll talk about that more at the end as well. But he's talking about believers, those who are chosen by God. And he is expressing Trinitarian faith here. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Father. And now you ask, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is the one breathing out these words from Jude. As Jude is writing, the Holy Spirit is guiding his pen, making sure that Jude writes the exact words that God wants him to say. So, and we know that because of 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's the Holy Spirit who breathes out God's words in Scripture. So, You've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You've got the, um, so you've got Trinitarian faith. You've got James writing. He's most likely a brother of Jesus Christ. And he uses the the term purchased, purchased by God. Um, Actually, he doesn't use the term purchased, but he uses the term servant, a servant of Jesus Christ. And really the word there, if you look up other, uh, other, translations, the word is really not servant, it's actually slave. In other words, Jude has been purchased as a slave by Jesus Christ. And 
uh, we get the sense that as he's writing, he's writing to fellow slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, the term slave, we view that as a derogatory term, a negative term. Certainly, slavery has been abused throughout history. I'm very grateful that we don't have slavery today in, in an earthly sense, at least not in a legal way. But Jude is actually proud to say that he is a slave of Jesus Christ because Jesus has purchased him by his blood on the cross. And if you're a believer, then you too have been purchased by Jesus Christ. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage from five different perspectives. We're going to look at the teaching, the heart condition that it diagnoses, our sin. We're going to look at how it is illuminated by the gospel. We're going to look at the application piece, which we call now what? And then we're going to look at knowledge needed or um, what unanswered questions are there. So you put all these together and we get T-H-I-N and K. So we're looking at this using the acronym THINK. And uh, this is an approach that I've developed called the THINK method of biblical study. And I got it straight out of scripture, straight out of Second Corinthians or Second Timothy 3, 16, and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God, useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And then I threw in a K because we always have unanswered questions after we read the Bible. So let's start with teaching. The big idea. What is the big, what is the big idea of the passage? And um, the big idea is this. In Christ, mercy, peace, and love are rightfully ours. And who is the us in this? Who, who is the us to whom belong mercy, peace, and love? Well, it's those who are called, beloved, and kept by God. So if you are a Christian, if you have been called and chosen by God, if you are loved by God, and if you are kept by God in Jesus Christ, then mercy, mercy from God, peace with God and peace in the world and love are rightfully yours. So as Jude is praying this for you, for me, what he's doing is he is claiming the rightful inheritance that belong to you and to me that are ours in Christ. Mercy, peace, and love. And these are three things that we need. We need mercy because we've sinned against God. We need peace because we have sinned against God and we are naturally enemies with God and, and enemies with one another in the world. And we need love because love is the deepest longing of the human heart. We are created not to be isolated islands of emptiness, but to be loved by others and ultimately to be loved by God. So mercy, peace, and love, these are not um, sentimental, emotional values. These are rock-solid benefits that we have in God that are delivered to us through Jesus Christ. So Jude is praying these things for us. He is wishing these things upon us, but he's also guaranteeing that they are ours in Christ Jesus. I wonder what you think about that. Mercy, peace, and love. Which of those three means the most to you? If you're watching this live, you can let me know. Let me know in the comments. Now, every passage of Scripture not only teaches us a big idea, but also diagnoses our heart condition. It hits at a certain sin, and it's going to reprove that sin. It's going to rebuke us for giving into this sin. And the sin that I believe that is being rebuked in this passage is this. It's the desire for autonomy. The desire to be the captain of my soul. Years ago, there was a movie starring uh, Matt Damon, 
It was a rugby movie, which of course I heartily approve of. I'm a rugger myself, used to play rugby, used to coach rugby, still follow professional rugby. And there was this rugby movie about the South African rugby team, the Springboks. And the theme throughout the movie was this poem called Invictus. And the the tagline from this poem is, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, this desire to be the captain of my soul, as much as it sounds fantastic in a Hollywood movie, in reality, it's a sinful desire. Because to be the captain of your own soul, to be autonomous, is to desire to live without any authority above you. The desire to live by your own rules, which ultimately... Uh, leads to what Cornelius Van Til, the theologian, called integration downward into the void. If you are the standard by which you live your life, then there is no mercy for you because there is no higher authority who can grant you mercy. All you're left with is your own failures and your own desire to absolve yourself of those failures. We all know that we failed. We all know that we don't live up to even our own standards, let alone the standard of God's that we know exists. But if we want to be captain of our own soul, there is no mercy. If we want to be captain of our own soul and maintain autonomy, there is no peace. Why? Because it's my way or the highway. I'm the standard. I'm the standard bearer. I'm the ultimate highest authority in the universe. There can be no peace with the my fellow combatants. It's, it's me or them. It's survival of the fittest. And so there can be no ultimate peace. There certainly can be no peace with God if I'm the captain of my own soul, because the only way peace with God comes is through reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. And then uh, there, there can be no love, because radical autonomy says that um, ultimately it's, it's I who matters, not you, not my neighbor, not God. That is, there is no way to have love without selflessness, without giving, without putting others ahead of myself. That is the essence of love and uh, seeking out the needs of others and the well-being of others. But autonomy says, no, I will rule according to my own desires. I will rule according to my own wants. And if somebody else gets in the way, well, too bad for them. Forget them. I'm going to rule myself. So this desire to be captain of my own soul cuts me off from true mercy, from true peace and true love, those things are only found in Jesus Christ. They're not found in autonomy. So this passage hits at the heart of that poem, and it hits at the heart of modern man's desire to be autonomous, to be the captain of my own soul. So where do we go from there? Well, what is going to possibly satisfy this desire that I have for mercy, peace, and love if it's not being the captain of my own soul and having autonomy. Well, Jude lets us know it is to be purchased by Christ. It is to be a slave of Christ. Now, the idea of being a slave sounds terrible to modern ears. We don't want to be slaves. We don't want to be servants. We don't want to be purchased. We don't want to owe anybody anything. And yet, my friend, this is the only way we can have mercy, peace, and love is to recognize that we owe God everything. We owe Jesus Christ everything because only he died and paid the penalty to reconcile us to God. 
And so Jude could have called himself any number of things. He could have called himself a brother of the Lord Jesus, but instead he calls himself a slave of Jesus. That shows you how deeply Jude understood his debt to the Lord. Even though the Lord was his brother in an earthly sense, he was his master and Lord from a heavenly sense and in the the sense that truly matters, which is uh, the grandest, most metaphysical sense, Jude had been purchased by Christ. And that is the answer to our sense and desire for ultimate autonomy, which is ultimately empty, vapid, and vain. So the, the way the gospel illuminates this passage for us is it lets us know that we are purchased by Christ, we are children of God, we are called and loved by God, and now we are united with other believers, other believers who have likewise been purchased by Jesus Christ, who have been adopted into God's family, and who are now sons and daughters of God. See, Jesus died to save us from our autonomy, which ultimately just led to regret. Jesus died for our autonomy and uh, our sin. So now what? How are we going to apply the teaching here in Jude? I'm curious to know what you think about this. Have you experienced being purchased by Jesus Christ? And what is the practical application in your life? Have you let go of your own autonomy? And have you taken up the cross that Jesus calls you to bear? Have you taken up, uh, rather than saying, I'm going to plot my own course in life, have you taken up the call of Jesus Christ to follow him? to walk the straight and narrow, to enter through the narrow gate, which is Jesus Christ himself, to build your foundation not on the shifting sands of culture and your own desires, but on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his teaching. Have you experienced that in your life? If you have, let me know. If you're watching this live, let me know in the comments. So how are we going to apply this? Well, here's, I think, the application piece for us. We can ask, now what? Well, here's the now what. Live today as a slave of Jesus Christ. Remember that he purchased you. If you are in Christ, if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised to life on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, remember that he purchased you by his blood. You are not your own. And now claim your rightful inheritance, mercy, peace, and love. Obey your master, Jesus Christ. And here's how you experience these things, the mercy and the peace and the love, here's how they flow out of you to others in your life. It can only come from Jesus, but it can come through you to others in your life. This is how you live your most authentic self, by embracing the ownership of Jesus Christ. You start there and then practically live that out. Show your kids mercy. Make peace with others in your life, especially if there are non-believers in your life. Love those that you've been called to love, that God has put in your local area, in your church, in your workplace, in especially in your home. Start with your wife, start with your kids, ladies, start with your husband, and then extend that love outward to others in your life. And that all comes from recognizing that you've been purchased by Jesus Christ, you are no longer your own and radically giving up your sense and your desire for autonomy. That's how I think we practically live this out. Now, my question for you is what questions do you have for me? 
While you're thinking of questions, go ahead and post those in the comments. And I want to just address a couple of questions that I had while I was researching this text. First things first, is Jude the brother of Jesus? Well, I believe that he is. Most likely he is. We can't prove it for certain, but this is what the pulpit commentary says. I'm going to read this to you. You can read this on Bible Hub. Um, it's the pulpit commentary. I think it does a great job of defending why we know that James is the brother of Jesus. Here's what it says. But he describes himself further as the brother of James. Sorry, why Jude is the brother of Jesus. He describes himself further as the brother of James. The title has nothing like it elsewhere in the inscriptions of the epistles, and as the participle which connects it with the former clause indicates, it points to something not merely additional, but distinctive. The distinction is the relationship to another person in the church better known and more influential than himself. For the James here mentioned is generally, and we believe rightly, identified not with the brother or son of Alphaeus, who appears among the twelve, but with the Lord's brother, who is represented by the book of the Acts, as in preeminent honor and authority in the mother church of Jerusalem. See, James was associated with the church of Jerusalem. So pulpit commentary continues. Jude, therefore, might have called himself the brother of the Lord. He abstains from doing so, it is supposed by some, because that title had become the recognized and almost consecrated name of James. Or it may rather be that he shrank from what might seem an appeal to an earthly kinship which had been sunk in a higher spiritual relationship. So in other words, Jude didn't call himself the brother of, of the Lord because James already had that title. And it was well known that James was brother of the Lord. Jude came along afterwards, wasn't trying to usurp that official role from James, wasn't putting himself higher than James or equal to James. Rather, he was calling himself the brother of James. And then by the by implication and by rational inference, James is Jude is then the brother of Jesus as well. Now, uh, one more quick word on what does Jude mean by called? This is a little tricky because in the Gospels, the word called and chosen, these are two words that are pitted against one another. Jesus says not uh, many are called, but few are chosen. So is James just calling, just referring to a sort of a general calling here? I don't think so. Pulpit commentary points out that most likely what Jude is referring to here, I know I keep calling him James, but what I mean is Jude. Uh, Jude seems to be saying that by called, he means election and effectual calling. Um, there are two kinds of calling in Scripture. There is the general call, which is sort of the proclamation of the gospel saying, repent and believe the gospel, Jesus Christ is Lord, submit to him. But then there's the effectual calling of God, wherein God calls you to believe in Jesus Christ. And that is not a calling you can get away from. This is why we talk about the doctrine of, of irresistible grace. If God has called you and drawn you to the Son, He will bring you to the Son. He will get, give you faith. That faith is a gift, according to Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. And He will raise you up on the last day. So uh, this... 
probably has uh, the same kind of concept in mind as we read about in the Old Testament, the idea of calling and election of a believing remnant in the nation of Israel. Not everybody in the nation of Israel was a believer, but there was an elect chosen remnant. Probably that's what Jude is referring to here as well, the that effectual calling of God, or wherein we um, we talk about the elect. So, that is what's going on here in Jude chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And um, we have a couple of comments here. Uh, also, if you are commenting on Facebook, please follow the directions in the description and uh, put in your permissions there so that I can know who's calling or who's commenting, and then I can call you out by name. We've got uh, someone is saying, hi, God bless from Canada. God bless you from Can from the United States. Um, I love Canada. You guys are great up there. You believers up there are great. I don't know what's going on with your government, um, Trudeau and whatnot. But uh, but I don't think this is Trudeau commenting. But God bless you from the United States. And then another Facebook user says, "Deep, the timing on this is perfect. I am one thousand percent behind you on this. That's awesome." Well, God bless you, and God bless you for listening. Thank you for watching, and I want to let you know, we're going to continue. If you guys like this, we're going to continue walking through Jude verse by verse for over the next eight weeks, this week included. So over the next seven weeks after today, we're going to walk through Jude one verse at a time, one small passage at a time. And we're going to get into some really fascinating, very fringy stuff, talking about celestial beings and ancient history and that sort of thing. It's all going to become very relevant to your life, and um, you're going to see how to apply these things and really how it all points to Jesus Christ and to the gospel of Christ. So if you enjoy this, let me know in the comments, or you can get in touch at thethink.institute slash contact. Thus, thethink.institute slash contact. I also want to give a quick shout out. If you'd like to give to support this work, you can do so by going to thethink.institute slash partner. And that's where you can make a tax-free donation to help support the work of the Think Institute. Also, one more thing I want to let you know is that the Hammer and Anvil Society is our in-depth, semi-secretive society. It's our educational fellowship for Christian men. And uh, we are currently closed for registration. But in seven weeks, we are going to reopen the registration. So if this is the kind of thing that you enjoy, this kind of in-depth teaching, and you'd like to do it in the context of a tight-knit group of believers, well, you really might want to check out the Hammer and Anvil Society. You can go there. You can go to thethink.institute slash society to get more information. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. This has been a production of the Think Institute. And uh, my name is Joel Sedekase. I'm the executive director of the Think Institute. I've really enjoyed our time together. And I will catch you next time.